Okay, well, good morning. Let me ask a question as we begin. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been in sharp disagreement uh, with someone else? And as that disagreement continues, the temperature uh, rises. Uh, often we might get worked up uh, as the other, or rather because the other person remains calm and doesn't seem to respond in a similarly agitated manner. Then we lose it and everything just explodes. Maybe you were the person getting agitated and worked up about that situation. Or perhaps you were the one on the receiving end of someone else's frustration and anger. In that moment, perhaps you felt as though you were on an utterly uh, different planet to whoever was facing or opposing you. You each had a completely different perspective, utterly different points of view. Or maybe you've uh, sometimes been in a situation where uh, you feel as though you're swimming against the tide. Everyone else wants to go one way uh, or do one thing and you desperately want to go in the other direction uh, or be somewhere else entirely. What happened in these situations? How did things work out if indeed they did at all? Well, we've been following the story of the early church uh, over these last few Sunday mornings, and today we come to just such a point in their story. And as we look at this together, uh, let's try and see what's going on and, and what we might learn from this for ourselves uh, to apply to our lives today. Let's read it together, shall we? It's in the book of Acts, uh, and we're picking up from chapter 7, verse 54. Uh, and reading through into the beginning of chapter 8. And we read that the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Now Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So let's remind ourselves uh, briefly of the backdrop to this incident. <clears throat> Last week we saw how a few individuals had stirred up opposition to Stephen and, and had him dragged before the Sanhedrin, uh, which was the ruling council of priests and elders uh, in there in Jerusalem. 
And they dragged him before the Sanhedrin to account for the things that he'd been saying about Jesus. And when we looked at this last week, Tim reminded us that first Jesus, then uh, two of his closest friends and followers, Peter and John, uh, twice, or, and now Stephen, had each been brought before the Sanhedrin in turn to give account of themselves and to explain the accusations being made against them. And all the while, the frustration and anger in the Sanhedrin has been growing and building. Now we read uh, there in verse 54, that first verse we read, that they were cut to the heart or cut to the quick. They were enraged. They were furious. Their core beliefs had been challenged. A raw nerve had been touched. They'd been convicted, but they're not willing to shift their position. They're not willing to repent. Instead, they respond by gnashing their teeth at Stephen, which literally means they sort of ground their teeth at him with some sort of hissing sound, exposing them in a hateful screwing up of their mouths. Not a pretty sight, one would imagine. I thought I might try and uh, demonstrate, but I'm not sure I could. Um, and anyway, there may be children watching this morning. The force of the text here is that the members of the Sanhedrin wailed in erratic, wild, jeering shouts of anger and hostility. Just try and picture that for a moment. It would probably make even the wildest outbursts in our House of Commons seem tame. Uh, maybe it more accurately reflects some of the scenes we've seen on our streets uh, in recent uh, months. Now, compare that with Stephen's response. In the very next couple of verses, we read that he's calm. He's not really focused on them. He doesn't give them his attention. Instead, his gaze is directed upwards towards God. He gazes intently. Now, although Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, we read that way back in chapter 6, he now experiences a special filling of the Spirit as he receives a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen's face was magnificently shining because he never took his eyes off the face of his Lord. To Jewish ears, this was blasphemy. The members of the court shout to drown out the blasphemy and they stick their fingers in their ears so they would not hear any more of it. And then finally, the dam bursts. They can contain themselves no longer. All semblance of order seems to disappear. They rush headlong at Stephen. They seize him and they beat him. They're in a frenzy. And now, of course, they have to finish what they've just started. Since no blood could be spilled in the temple precincts, they drag the dazed and beaten Stephen outside the city wall for one of the most painful and prolonged methods of execution imaginable. He was pushed over the wall into the pit from which there was no escape from the hurling stones. A blow to the head with death-giving concussion would have been merciful. But I suspect that the crowd that day was not as accurate or precise in aim as an execution squad 
would be. Almost certainly that vital death blow was a long time in coming. Now they might argue that they were justified. The penalty laid down for blasphemy was indeed stoning. But all pretense of legal procedure or propriety had been abandoned. The formal process laid down for such cases had been completely disregarded. It's a very dramatic and in some ways quite gruesome scene. So what's going on here and what can we learn from it? Well, I think for the church in Jerusalem, this must have raised some profound questions. What was God, what was the Lord doing? How could he allow this to happen to one so faithful as Stephen? Why didn't he step in and stop it? Stephen was at the height of his power as a witness. Why snuff out so bright a flame? And those same questions perhaps confront us, not just in regard to these events, but also for those times when we've asked these same questions about tragedies that we hear of or that we've experienced closer to home, or when things just seem to go completely off the tracks in our lives. The answers to these questions come only as we step back and try to see the bigger picture. Though, let's be aware that even then our answers may only be partial and tentative. There comes a point at which we simply have to trust God and his goodness. So let's try and draw together the threads of our journey through these first few chapters of the book of Acts. Right back at the beginning, we saw how Jesus, in his final words to his disciples, tell them, tells them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, he says, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, with the death of Stephen, that word witness enters the English language as our word martyr. A martyr is, quite literally, a witness. That's the root of the word here. Someone who gives evidence. So I guess the first question is, why do we use that word for someone who dies for their faith? And I think we can tease a number of reasons out of uh, this account of Stephen's death. Firstly, at the most basic level, if I'm prepared to give up my life to die for my faith, then I'm showing that my faith is not simply some set of abstract ideas, not something that simply gives me a nice comforting glow or just provides me with a, a framework for living my life. Though, of course, those are both parts of it. No, rather, I'm asserting that my faith is rooted in what I believe to be the fundamental truth about all things. This is the way the world really is and the way it, it works, or rather the way it should work. And that is something more important and valuable 
even than life itself. So that's the basic level, but there's so much more here. Look, shouts Stephen, we read as the Sanhedrin hurl abuse at him. He uh, and he alone, the others can see nothing. He and he alone sees heaven opened, we read. Now, this doesn't mean that he sees some sort of far off door in the sky through which you might catch the slightest glimpse of something. Now, consider this. Have you ever been on a, a hilltop with clouds, mist swirling all around? You can't really see very much, can you? And then suddenly the cloud breaks, the sun streams through and a whole new vista opens up before you. That is more or less what's happening here. It's like a veil or a curtain being drawn back. You, know, you see things that were there all along, but hidden from view and now revealed. And that's what Stephen sees. That's the vision that's given to see Stephen. He sees the heavenly court around the throne of God superimposed on the earthly one. Instead of the high priest, there he sees Jesus, our great high priest. And it's reminiscent of a vision given to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. And Stephen uses similar language to describe it. Stephen sees Jesus in his role as the son of man, the same title. He's given in Daniel's vision. But it's a title in the New Testament that's found almost exclusively on the lips of Jesus himself. The early church seemed rarely to use this uh, as a title that they would give to Jesus. So what's going on? I think the point here is that Stephen sees Jesus as the one who has suffered and was vindicated by God. Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. It was a prophet, prophetic uh, for calling of his crucifixion. And this then becomes a pattern which is followed by Christian martyrs. But it's also a vision of Jesus as the one who will vindicate in God's presence those who are not ashamed of Jesus and acknowledge their allegiance to him before men. Jesus also said to his disciples that everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man, there's that title he uses again, will confess him also before the angels of God. If we read the text carefully, we see that Stephen sees Jesus standing. Whereas usually when such scenes are described in the Bible uh, and when we read of Jesus following his ascension, we read of him being seated at God's right hand. But no, Stephen sees him standing. He's standing as an advocate to plead Stephen's cause 
before God and to welcome him into God's presence. The point here then of being a martyr, a witness, is not just that giving one's life to death provides a striking confirmation of one's faith. It shows something much more, that the point at which a person stands at the very threshold of heaven and earth, still in earth but called to give up their life for the faith, that is the point where they may just for a moment be in a position where they can see, as it were, both dimensions of reality and speak about the one that is normally hidden to those who cannot yet see it for themselves. It's a whole new uh, aspect, perspective to that idea of being a witness. You speak of a reality, a dimension of reality that is normally hidden, but which is momentarily revealed to them, and they speak of it to those who are around, who are listening, who are persecuting them. And so I think the point that Luke is trying to make here as he describes this is that the temple which was supposed to be the place where heaven and earth met, which Stephen had teased apart in his speech, and we looked at that last week. The temple was supposed to be that place, but Stephen is demonstrating what he has previously spoken of, that heaven and earth, in fact, come together in Jesus and his followers. Now, clearly not all martyrs, in the sense in which we usually use that word, have given that kind of testimony. But equally clearly, not only in the case of Stephen, but also in several others, throughout the violent history that has followed the preaching of the gospel down through the years, there have been many others who seem to have had a similar experience, given sight of things normally unseen, and to speak out in their dying moments. Archbishop Thomas Cramner called out something similar as he was being burned at the stake outside the gate of Balliol College in Oxford. A glimpse of a reality which is normally hidden, but is nonetheless a reality that is with us all the time. And then thirdly, There is this extraordinary and remarkable dimension to the manner in which Stephen bears witness to Jesus in these moments. Martyrdom, of course, is not unique to Christianity. Throughout the ages, many have given their lives in the name of different faiths or causes. Indeed, there had been many martyrs in the last few centuries of Jewish history leading up to the death of Jesus, the the centuries preceding this incident. And what we know and see of these and other martyrs is that I think without exception in their final moments, they call down condemnation or retribution on their enemies. They call on God to avenge them. The early Christians, Stephen included, were all first century Jews. And so this is the kind of response that we might also expect from them. But we see something completely 
different. Stephen has just given a no-holds-barred speech in which he declares a ferocious indictment against the Jewish leaders. But now, as he approaches the moment of his own death, as his body is brutally smashed and crushed by the stones thrown at him, he asks God not to hold this sin against them. He calls down blessing and forgiveness rather than cursing and judgment. His words echo those of the one to whom he has given his life, Jesus, who, as he's hung dying on a cross, called out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Stephen's final words stand in startling contrast to the words of denunciation in his speech. And I think this is a reminder to us, a reminder that we should heed over and over that whilst we are to stand for truth and to call out sin and disobedience to God, it is always with the intention of helping to lead others to repentance. We must also carry a genuine and deep pastoral concern, a heart of compassion for those around us, praying that they may be forgiven. And then in his final prayer, as the death blow falls, Stephen reveals whom it is he believes to be his sustaining power. He prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's a striking example of a form of words that were originally used to address the Father. The words that Christ spoke on the cross. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Here by Stephen, addressed to Jesus, the Son. It's a final and ultimate witness to the way in which the early Christians placed Jesus on the same level as the Father. And then finally, Stephen's death is a kind of flashpoint. It, it unleashes this wave of persecution, this much wider attack on the church in Jerusalem. And this partially helps to answer our question, what was God doing? We've seen he was enabling Stephen to uh, give ever more powerful witness. But God was not finished in this situation. Jesus had said to his disciples, you'll recall, we were reminded at the beginning that that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses uh, into uh, Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. And now Stephen's death, through Stephen's death, this sect of Judaism was forced to flee Jerusalem. They were scattered and so too with them was their faith. They found themselves in Judea and in Samaria and the worldwide movement had begun. It seems to me quite likely that they would never would have left Jerusalem without the persecution and punishment that was inflicted on them. At the beginning of our story in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came upon the gathered believers in the form of fire. A fire can be contained for a while, but there comes 
a flashpoint or you you get that event which is called a sometimes called a backdraft when a fire suddenly breaks out and spreads rapidly and uncontrollably the death of stephen ignited the fire of the pent-up hatred for the followers of jesus it exploded with fury and those who were faithful to jesus had to leave Eventually, they were dispersed throughout the cities of the Mediterranean basin and planted the seed which would slowly germinate until it was ready to sprout into indigenous churches across the world. Jesus warned his disciples to expect persecution, to be ready, to be prepared. This is the experience of the church throughout history. We find ourselves in a momentary lull. As we face our lesser challenges and difficulties, can we hold unswervingly to the belief that our faith is built on something, or rather someone, stronger and of greater value than life itself? In times of difficulty, confusion or conflict, do we behave like the members of the Sanhedrin, agitated, erratic, angry even? Or are we like Stephen, our eyes fixed steadfastly on Jesus? Are we ready to stand firm when our way of life, or maybe even life itself, is being shaken and under threat? Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What does that look like for me, for you? Then secondly, we may not be granted a vision of heaven like that given to Stephen, but is heaven hidden, just tantalising beyond the veil, that alternate reality, that alternate dimension of actually the one reality? Is that a daily reality for us? And what difference does or might that make in our lives? And then are we quick to pronounce blessings and forgiveness rather than hold grudges and pronounce curses and judgment? The church was unleashed in this moment. Persecution broke it out of uh, their familiar routines and it set them on the road to bear witness to Jesus and the coming of God's kingdom. We may be thankful that we don't experience such persecution, at least not yet. But let's not be in that place where God needs to bring persecution to us in order to shake us from our complacency or slumber. Is this the moment for the church to be unleashed in Southampton? Stephen's eyes remained steadfastly on Jesus. Let us too keep our eyes on Jesus, the instigator and perfecter of our faith.